Let's take a minute and pray before we open God's Word, and I'm going to take a minute and pray for some in our church family who are sick this morning, and God, I'm so grateful that as we, as we come to you, uh, that we come to the God who hears prayer, that you are a good, good Father. You are good and gracious to us as our King. Uh, you are the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And so we, uh, we come to you and, and pray to you because we have nowhere else to go. Uh, you know by name every single person in our church family that's sick and is struggling physically and otherwise this morning. But by name, we want to pray for Mr. and Mrs. Bays, as I know they're struggling mightily physically together, um, both in their 80s and seeking to be a support to one another but both really dealing with significant physical constraints. So would you be near to them this morning? Would you draw near to them as they draw near to you? Would you give them strength to look toward the things of heaven, to trust in you and your promises when their physical frame fails them? Thank you that there's an eternal weight of glory waiting for your people that far surpasses the the temporary pain of this life. I want to pray for the jewels as well, for Bill and for Laura, and particularly for Bill's brother, Jeff, as he's undergone surgery this week, significant surgery to remove cancer. Um, and I pray, God, as he's dealing with fever and some other complications, that you'd graciously protect him, be with the hands of the doctors, um, watch over him and his family, and pray to be with his kids and with the extended family, give them peace in the midst of what looks uncertain on this side of things, but what's certain to you, you know the beginning from the end. I pray that you'd minister to them, even now as they're up in in Raleigh, uh, getting treatment for Jeff. Uh, God, we're grateful that you care about even the minutest details of our lives. You, you call us to pray about the various things that face us, and so now we pray that you'd help us to lay aside uh, anything uh, that would distract us and keep us from hearing what you have for us this morning. Uh, this is a, a tricky passage in the sense that there's a whole lot of ourselves that has to get out of the way in order to believe the the simple but yet challenging call of submission to authority. So would you help us do supernaturally what we don't do naturally? Uh, would you help us to understand the things that are unclear? Would you help us be submitted to the things that we don't want to obey? And would you help us love you more as a result of being in your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's open to the book of First Peter. We're going to be back in First Peter to this morning, and uh, as you heard me mention last week, probably if you were here, and maybe for some of you might have been anticipating all week because of the controversy involved of, with government that kind of is inherent with it, uh, but maybe even just as you heard me pray a second ago, there's a, there's a complicated nature to this section in First Peter, but it's, um, it's not because the text is complicated, quite honestly. Um, the call to submission to authority is complicated for a whole host of reasons, but it's not because the text itself is unclear about what it's calling us to do. It's just because of our own sin, our own failure, and all of the different external things that kind of push into the call to submit to government that it becomes difficult. But before we get into it, let me just ask you a couple of questions. I'm going to try to level the playing field here a little bit, all right? So you need to just cooperate with me for a moment. So I want you to raise your hand if you've ever said one of these two things or both. Who's ever said, you can't tell me what to do? Okay. All right. So keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. 
Anybody ever said, you are not the boss of me? Okay, for everybody who didn't raise your hand, it's just because you forgot when you were little, you said probably both those things multiple times. You, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. It's not just something we say when we're little. It's really the posture of the human heart. So if you go all the way back to the beginning, it's like a, kind of like a, an issue as old as time. It's an issue as old as mankind. Because central to what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve was basically, you won't be the boss of me. You won't tell me what to do. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to determine good and evil for myself. And so when you go all the way back to the beginning, and it moves us all the way now to this command in the New Testament to submit to authority, we have to start by remembering that it is our natural inclination as human beings to rail against authority. We want to be the boss of ourselves. We want to be the authority over our own lives. We want to be the king of our personal kingdom, whatever description you want to add to that, that's our natural inclination as people. And I think it's really important to start there because in First Peter, as we've talked about, what we have is this letter written to Christians who are dispersed in all sorts of places, namely in current-day Turkey, as this peculiar people, these pilgrims who are here on this earth temporarily who have been supernaturally called out from the world to live for God. So as those who are naturally bent to self-rule and rebellion against God, rebellion against authority, what we see in the Bible is when we trust in Jesus Christ and his saving work in our lives, what happens is we become different. And what, one of the things that happens is we become those who, although we naturally don't submit, we actually submit to authority as, a, as an expression of an outflow of our faith in Jesus Christ. So this isn't just some secondary like, hey, it's just going to work out better for you if you just submit to authority in your life, just pragmatically, like, hey, it's just going to, it's just going to go a little smoother. Just do it this way. This, this is central to the identity of the believer. This is part of the outworking of the Christian faith. And so we have to understand that ultimately this supernatural change has been brought about through what the Bible refers to as a rebirth in the first chapter and a half, Peter speaks to this supernatural change, a change so significant it can only be described as being born again. The blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's been a rebirth in these broken people. We used to be rebels and now we're children of God. We used to be far off from him and now we're brought near through the blood of Jesus, the work of Jesus alone. And so now we have a new identity and we have a new king, as it were. We're no longer the king of our own lives. God is the one who is not only the author but the king of our hearts. So we know and we serve a holy God and so we're called to be holy and all our conduct. We talked a lot about that. The second half of chapter one begins to shift from kind of the identity of who we are to the implications of who we are on our conduct. Be holy for I am holy. Be, be holy for I am holy in all of your conduct. And we looked at last week this call to, to, to put away certain things. We have to abstain from fleshly passions, all the worldly desires that we could have and let our behavior be excellent among those who don't know God. So that, and the thing in which they speak against us, when they see our 
good behavior, they're going to glorify God the day that he visits, the day he returns. It's got eternal implications. The main idea from this text we're going to go through this morning is that Christians are called to submit to and honor government authorities. Almost immediately, there are some of you that resist that. And there's varying reasons for that. And I'm not going to be able to address everything in a lot of the couple years we have just been through. You know the challenges. But I think there's something about the simplicity of what is given here that rails against this desire to want to make excuses or find the outs. Like, let me just find the the clause that allows me to get out of this. Let me just submit this to you. Like, the starting block for the Christian is what I just said to you in brief form. The starting block for the Christian is the principle of submitting to government authorities. That's where we start. Now, the complexities and the questions of how it works out is secondary to that launching point. But we can't start from a posture of rebellion. That's not the new life in Christ. So we can't start with this automatic presupposition of, I'm just going to look for the way I don't have to obey this command. That's not the right way to look at this text. Just like it's not right to say, like, how much can I sin and still be saved? It's not right to look at this text and be like, well, what are the reasons for me not to obey government? And there are legitimate reasons, but that shouldn't be where we start. Because a simple call to believers is to submit to government authorities. And we're going to try to unpack that in however much time I'm given here. I've got about three and a half hours worth of notes, so let's see how it goes. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm going to need a handkerchief by the time we're done. But this is a, as, as Bill said in his text he preached through First Peter, at the beginning of chapter 2, this is a simple but hard command. It's clear, but it's complex. But let's allow the simplicity and, the, and the, the clarity with which God speaks it to be what really kind of throttles our hearts this morning. So let's read verses. We're going to go back to verse 11 and read verses 11 through 17 to kind of orient us, and then I'll try to make some observations in the time I have. I can't even see the clock up there. I think it says 10-something. We're going to go with 8.30. All right. Good deal. All right. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, pilgrims, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as set by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And this is the Word of God for us this morning. The main idea, Christians are called to submit to and honor government authorities. So, so what, we, what we're going to have, we're going to treat the next several sections as kind of a unit. So this is a three-part series on submission to authority. Because if you just look at your Bibles for a second, verse 13 that we just read, it says, be subject 
Just note that particular phrase. Go down to verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, if you look there, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. There's a way in which what this unit gives us, the submission to authority, is that on this side of heaven, we operate in a realm in this world where things are less than ideal. So when you look at the fact that we're in the midst of a government, whether it be right now or whether you look in first century Rome, which I would submit is a lot less ideal than what we deal with today, what, what Peter is saying is that there's a way in which the Christian life is lived out in these different categories in situations that are less than ideal. But the call is the same in all three. Whether you have a disobedient husband, submit to his authority. And we'll get to that. Come back a couple weeks from now. We'll talk about that. Whether you're in a government that doesn't, that's foolish and ignorant to the things of God, be subject to government authorities. Whether you have a boss who's unjust and harsh, be subject to your boss. And all those things are supremely counterintuitive and counterculture, but that's kind of the point, right? Because we aren't normal. Pilgrims are peculiar. That's who we are. Like we're different than the world. The things that everybody does naturally, there are things that the believer does that are supernatural that cause the world to, to notice, curiously to be like, what in the world is, is wrong, <laughs> wrong with you? Like, what, what, where is this coming from? And that's the whole point that's being made. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that in and through you, the excellencies of God would be proclaimed, the one who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So part of the call is to be subject to government authorities. In all these situations and contexts, we have the opportunity to bear witness to the difference the Lord Jesus has made and is making in our lives through submission to authority. And this is the starting block, as I mentioned. So we don't want to go into this text looking for, in light of the challenge, thinking about all of the thinking about the president we don't like, thinking about everything the last two years with COVID. I'm not going to nuance every situation. You want to talk about those things? I'm happy to later, but I'm not going to do that this morning. I think all it does is take us away from the text. And so what I want to do is just plainly slide out in the room. This is what the Bible says is the command. And we can nuance things later on, but let's let the simplicity of the Word of God just kind of fall on our hearts. Because what's at stake is of the church and a world that desperately needs to see that we are different than they are. Not because we're better, but because we have Jesus. So, submission to authority is part of pursuing holiness, being set apart, being different in a world that treasures personal autonomy and independence from authority. But as Christians, we're well acquainted with the framework of submitting to authority, right? We submit to God. Like, we're subjects of the King of Kings. He's our supreme ruler. We willingly and humbly submit ourselves to the authority of God in all things. Just real quickly, just a couple sections. Ephesians 1, 22, Jesus is head over all things to the church. That's why you see in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24, the church submits to Christ. It's the same picture. And we submit to government and rulers like we're seeing this morning. We see in Romans 13, which we'll get to in a moment. We submit to one another Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a way in which we submit believer to believer to one another in the body of Christ. 
So in the church, believer to believer, sheep to shepherd, shepherds to Christ, in the home, wife to husband, and husband and wife to Christ, child to parent, and at work, employee, employee to employer. And this, this word, be subject, is a compound word. It's a Greek word that's mixed with a preposition and another verb. It literally means to position yourself underneath, to align or order yourself under another. So we're probably familiar with military terms. There are times when someone is assigned a position or placed underneath the God-given authority of another person. And the call here uniquely is that you, believer, subject yourself. It's like a self-inflicted. It's a choice that you make to be subject to another, to Christ first and then in secondary ways to other people that I just rattled off a minute ago, but arrange yourself, order yourself, align yourself underneath authority, a willing, humble submission to authority. Now, some of you may like FC, mixed martial arts. Some of you may have an aversion to that. It's okay, but there's something in UFC, mixed martial arts, called a submission hold. It comes in all sorts of forms, like your arms get ready to break, so you tap out. You're getting ready to get choked out, so you tap out. But your, your submission is forced, it's coerced by some sort of move when it does to you. And that's not what's being talked about here. It's not just based on the force of the government. It's not based on external circumstances that you be, you're, you're to be subject to governing authorities. It's this internal desire to please God that's fleshed out by being subject to governmental authorities by our own initiative and decision. And ultimately, what you see in the text, go back to the text that we read, particularly verse 13. Be subject to what? For the Lord's sake. This is, this is for the sake of God. Be subject to governmental authorities. That's the, that's the fuel for our obedience. Is this is for God's sake. For the Lord's name, for his fame, for his glory, submit yourself to government. Ultimately, the motivation for it is the fame and the renown of God. It's with God in mind that we submit to government authorities. Our life is not our own. We live for him. We've been rescued and redeemed by him. So we want to do all things for his sake. And my willing submission to authority and accountability is directly related to my submission to Christ. And when I'm submitted to Christ, there's a, there's a willingness to submit myself to the individuals and authorities that God puts in place. And we're going to get there in just a moment. Because as God's people, as Bible-believing Christians, and please don't miss this part, this is so important to this particular principle for the Christian life. If we believe our Bibles, then what we believe is that there has absolutely never been or ever will be any authority in the universe that hasn't been put there by God. It's never happened. There's never been some rogue emperor that wasn't allowed to be there by the hand of God. And it's difficult to look at the, the scope of history and all the evil that's taken place, and this is where it gets complex. Because just because God has initiated, allowed, instituted a particular authority in place, it doesn't mean that that authority institutes biblical, godly standards, practices, and philosophies. And that's where it gets difficult, right? We have to 
And we'll get there in just a moment. But you look in Romans chapter 13. I want, I want everybody who has a Bible in front of them to, to flip to Romans chapter 13. Because you can't really study this passage. You can't even look at commentary without being thrown to some degree back to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 is written by the Apostle Paul. Again, in the context of the Roman Empire. And he's speaking very much in the same way as Peter does. And just a quick look back. You might even have in your Bibles. The section right before chapter 3, verse 1, there's a little chunk that in many Bibles is noted the marks of the true Christian. It's got all sorts of things, like abhor what is evil, you know, honor one another. There's this laundry list of Christian character. But nestled right in there, and these chapter breaks aren't inspired, so 13.1 is just a continuation of the marks of the Christian life. And this is what it says. We're going to read the first seven verses. Paul says this to the the church in Rome. He says, let every person be subject, there's our term, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Strong language. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, there's our term again, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So to some degree, submitting yourself to governmental authority is an expression of your submission to God himself if we believe what we just read in Romans chapter 13. Why? Because behind, this picture is behind every single earthly authority is the ultimate authority of the God of the universe. So our, our submission to, to governmental authorities is an expression of our submission to the supreme authority of God. We trust in Him. There's nobody out there outside of the control of God, so we trust in Him. Behind them, as evil or as great as we think they are, is the hand of God that we trust in. So whether in the affirming way where we look to a ruler and we affirm what they say, what they do, what party they're a part of, or we look at the ruler and we don't agree with who they are, what they say, the party they're a part of, our trust is is not in either one. It's in the God who is behind them, working his purposes in history, who upholds everything by the word of his power. And so we don't align as a peculiar people of God with any sort of geographical kingdom or political kingdom. Like we're aligned with the spiritual kingdom of God alone, period. That's it. So our hope isn't in political parties or powers, and nor do we rail against every single party or power because we see behind every authority on earth is the absolute authority of the God of heaven 
And Jesus even saw this, such a unique moment. You think about even Jesus' life, because he, he had run-ins with government authorities, didn't he? And everybody said yes and amen. And if you read the gospel accounts, because he did, he was on trial in front of many particular political leaders, and Pontius Pilate being one of the most notable. In John chapter 19, verse 9 through 11, Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What's really interesting here is he did. From an earthly, worldly sense, Pilate had that authority. And it goes on to bear that out just a couple sentences later as Jesus is turned over to be crucified. But look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Even Jesus in his darkest hour looked at Pontius Pilate, who indeed had a, a wicked ruler, who had, indeed had authority. He said, you know what? You wouldn't be in this place were it not for the hand of God who gave you this moment to have. Behind every single earthly authority, power, political party is the hand of God, the supreme hand of God authoring and ushering into place even every authority we've ever seen throughout all of history. Although every governmental position authority has been established or instituted by God, what I mentioned earlier, it doesn't mean every government functions in a godly manner or in a way that pleases God. But John Calvin put it this way. He says, however corrupt a government be, God never considers that corruption to be so great as to not be better than anarchy. Anarchy is the complete absence of any order or discipline or government. The point that John Calvin was making is that really any government is better than no government. And we can look at that and be like, well, maybe, but if you think about just absolute anarchy where there's no objective standard for right and wrong, there'd be no way we would choose that over and against any other option. That's what the Bible calls lawlessness, where there is no law, sin abounds unrestrained, and it's a common grace of God to believer and non-believer that there's authority that restrains the natural impulses of men, that rewards good and that deals justice out to evil. That's what we see even in our text from this morning. But go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue on there. But what happens, this introduces, because we have God putting in place those who enact corrupt policies and actions, it introduces the question, well, how far? How far are we called to follow or come underneath the government? Are we called, like we are called to civil obedience. That's a starting block. That's my premise. Like the, the starting block for us as believers is the starting block is we are called to submit to government authorities. That's where we start. You can view it as a track with obstacles and hurdles along the way. But where we start is the principle of submit yourself to government authorities. But the question reasonably becomes, well, what, what are the points in which we don't submit? When is it necessary and right to engage in civil disobedience? And there's been a whole lot of debate in this space based on all of the, the local national standards related to masks and COVID things. And I'm not going to get into the weeds on that because there's been some people who have agreed with our stance over the last couple of years. Some people thought we're moving too slowly, some people too fast. And that's the complexity of this space because God starts with a very high level standard. And the fleshing out of that takes prayer and discernment. 
because it's a gray area, quite honestly, in many ways. There's a whole lot of podcasts and commentary out there. I would encourage you not to just eat it all up, but be discerning on what you listen to. But here's a very simple principle that I think guides us in this question. The question being, how far do we go in our submission to government? We are never to follow the government when the government prohibits something that God commands or commands something that God prohibits. That's the general standard. As a follower of Christ, we follow God first. We follow the words of Scripture. So where God speaks, we obey. If the world and any authority calls us to disobey God, we must defy that order. Or if it commands us to do something that God prohibits, then we must say no. We see examples of this in the Bible, right? You see it in Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see it in Daniel himself. Like just to use the example of these three young men, the whole, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, instituted this, this king worship, right? This statue they were supposed to bow down to when certain instruments were played. And these three peculiar little pilgrims in a place that wasn't their home, namely in Babylon, they're like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to obey that command. It's a good expression of this principle. And what do they say? They said, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace you're about to throw us into, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to, may it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's Daniel 3, 17 and 18. And you see it early on. We just studied through the book of Acts, right? You see Peter and John. They're told not to preach in the name of Jesus. They're like, well, whether it's right in your eyes for us to obey you or God, you be the judge, but we're going to obey God. That's the side we fall on. God has commanded us to preach and to follow Jesus, and that's what we're going to obey and not your voice. Why? Because they were trying to prohibit something God had commanded. So that's probably the highest level, most important standard for us to remember, but remember the starting block is submission. And Peter is fairly all-inclusive. He says, be subject to every human institution. The idea here is like anything created humanly, whether it be the emperor is supreme or the governors is sent by him, those who do evil and to praise those who are good. That's verse 14. Verse 15, just like we saw, it's for the Lord's sake. He says, this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we are to humbly order ourselves under the institutions put in place for man, for society, the government instituted by God and established by men, whether the emperor or lesser authorities, governors sent by him. So there's a potential objection here. Like maybe we look back at the first century like, you know what? Like the first century, Peter, like he didn't really know what our situation was going to be like. He didn't know who our president was going to be. All the craziness that was going to come from the White House or from the senators, from Congress, like whatever it is. He, I mean, they just didn't know. So, well, church family, like, please don't buy into the deception that Peter didn't know wickedness in leadership. So just a quick snapshot of context. Peter's writing this book in the first century and guess who's at the helm in Rome? Nero. If you have any history lesson, Nero instituted the most severe persecution against Christians history has ever known. 
But yet nestled in this is this call to honor the emperor, the very one who set out to kill Christians, is blaming them for the fire that destroyed Rome. He says, be subject to the government, whether the emperor or lesser authorities, be subject to them. Honor them. It's a supernatural call. It's an otherworldly type response, particularly to a leader that not only do you not like, but who's opposed to you personally and opposed to your faith. And this next part, this, some of the reason given, this is the will of God, but it also submission silences foolish men. Now, some of us in this room are like, now we're talking. This is what I'm talking about right here. The word's like a muzzle. Like, we want to shut up ignorant people. Like, we want to shut up the village idiot. Like, that's what, that's what I'm about, Matt. Like, tell me how to shut up foolish people. Like, that's what, that's what this last two years has been, right? We're trying to make arguments to shut up the other side to depict even our president. As much as we might disagree with him as the village idiot, I think, quite honestly, this simple call to honor the emperor, honor the king, should confront us. I've been guilty of that jokes at the president's expense. I don't think it's consistent with what I see here. This simple reading of this passage. There's a way in which esteem and honor the president, whether it be of the party that I agree with or not. Why? Because behind every single authority, every single president that's ever been, is the almighty authority of the hand of God. But yet, there's this apologetic to the world. And this is where it's really interesting because a similar thing is given in the verse 11 and 12. I don't know if you caught that. It's like, let your conduct be excellent among the Gentiles so that when people speak out against you, they claim that you're crazy and weird. Like in the first century, they claim that you're cannibals because you're eating somebody's flesh, drinking somebody's blood, communion. They claim that you're an atheist because you don't follow the the pantheon of gods of the Roman Empire, and the thing in which they slander you because of your good conduct, they're going to glorify God when he returns. That's the argument in verse 11 and 12. There's a similar argument here. When you subject yourself to governing authorities and when you honor the emperor, what's going to happen is you're going to shut up. You're going to muzzle the ignorance of foolish people. What kind of ignorance are we talking about? It's It's the people who don't know God. We're surrounded in this world, like we're traveling through a world we don't belong to, surrounded by people we don't belong in. And in that world, it's it's filled with ignorance and foolishness of those who don't know God. And the apologetic here is subject yourself, submit to it. And in that, there's this powerful apologetic that's going to shut up the mouths of those who oppose you. (laughs) This is crazy. It feels like crazy talk. Because what we want to do is we want to rail against those we don't agree with. We want to launch into activism or political reformation as as an initial response or as our primary weapon. And I would just submit to you from this text, the primary weapon against foolishness and the ignorance of those who don't know God is a submitted heart, ultimately to the sovereignty of God, expressed through the submission to government. And it's otherworldly. There's no two ways about it. It's not natural for us. That's the whole, because it's not natural for us. It's supernatural within us. We're new creations. Old things have passed. New things have come. There's a new way of dealing with the world. There's a new way of responding to those in authority we don't agree with 
because of Christ within us. He's made us new, and He's made us different. But submission silences foolish men. And our weapon against the lawlessness of men, women, and governments who do not know God is to submit. God is telling you this morning that submission is the way you silence the ignorance of those who do not know God. Our starting block, our posture, and our primary weapon is not revolt or rebellion. It is submission. Our strategy is not firstly activism, but evangelism. It's not political reformation, but spiritual transformation. I believe this wholeheartedly from this text. But somewhere along the way, in different shades and forms, I think the church has, and I pray that we will not and have not, got caught up into thinking there's some primary weapon that we have that's, that's other than the Word of God, that's other than what's given to us here. That doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't seek to be in office, shouldn't be good citizens. In fact, you can make the argument biblically, Christians should be the best citizens around. They should be the best employees. And this is central to why. Because we have a framework for how to submit to people that we don't agree with. That's, that's unnatural, is it not? Everybody said amen. We don't do that naturally. But we do that because of Christ within us. That's how and that's why we do the things we don't naturally do. But the church's chief responsibility to combat the foolishness and lawlessness of the world is not to pick up the sword of the world, but to demonstrate our supernatural life through the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which allows us to do things natural men don't do. And there were some, like the Jewish zealots during Jesus' ministry, who believed that their distinction as Jews set them apart in such a way as the people of God, it gave them the freedom to not follow any government. Because, hey, we're the people of God, so we don't submit to any sort of authority. That's what zealots were back in Jesus' day. Well, how disappointed they would have been to hear Paul as he made his defense before Roman King Agrippa at the end of the book of Acts and Roman Governor Festus, because here's some of what Paul says. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today. Chapter 25, verse 25, as he speaks to Festus, he says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Here's my point. Paul, when he stood before these Roman authorities who weren't ultimately his authority per se, he was submitted to God, he didn't walk into that room and say, you aren't my president. You aren't my ruler. That was not his posture. Supremely different. Most excellent Festus. You are, king, you are the king. You're King Agrippa. And I humbly, meekly respond to the accusations. But he didn't go in there railing against the fact that you're just some fake authority. In fact, they were in a position of authority, and he sought to honor them. And those Jewish zealots would have railed against Paul as a result. Although Paul knew Jesus Christ had set him free, as Peter states, his freedom in Christ wasn't used as a veil or cloak for bad behavior. And this is what's really interesting about this whole section is because what Peter says is that submission flows from our freedom. This is, this is so counterintuitive. When you start to think about like submitting to a boss you don't like who's unjust and harsh, or submitting in the context of marriage to a guy who doesn't really know what he's doing, like your husbands and all the husbands raise their hands, right? Like in that context, when you think about it, 
Like the, the call to be subject to another person is, is a function of our freedom. Like we're free in Jesus Christ. If we trust in him. We can follow his word with freedom. And so we don't use this freedom like you're not going to be the boss of me. That wasn't freedom. That was captivity when we used to say those things. That's, form, that's a former way of life. That's a former way of thinking. When you say, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. That's what, that's what was said in the garden. That's not Christ in you. What this passage at the very least is saying is that you, your response is different. You can submit out of a function of your freedom, that you are free men and women, and don't use your freedom as some excuse to mask ungodly behavior, immature responses. Wow, it's not my president. I don't have to listen. Wow. Read this text again. I don't think that's the posture of this text it gives us to consider. And the way God shepherds us through this particular moment, our willing, humble submission to authority is a function of our liberty in Christ. And Peter ends with this progression. It's almost like if you can picture someone taking a tennis ball and lobbing it way in the air, like he starts on the ground, he shoots it up, and he ends back on the ground because he says, honor everyone, every single person. Show them honor. In every case, honor every man and woman as those made in the image of God and as a result possessing inherent worth. Esteem them, honor them. And it goes a little bit higher. Love the brotherhood, the family of God. As we covered in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, the permanent change that God's Word has brought about in us allows us to earnestly and purely love one another. There's a peculiar and particular love we are called to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see it in the second letter that Peter writes as this progression of spiritual fruit in our lives. He says, let brotherly love be found in you, brotherly affection that's rooted in love. And he says, let that, among other things, increase in you yourself, fruitful and effective in your life for God. Brotherly affection should abound in the heart of the believer. Love the brotherhood, and then to its highest point, he says, fear God. The emperor or king is to be honored, but never more than the king of kings. And we are called to submit to the king, but never worship the king. And emperor worship was very much central to the Roman Empire at the time Peter wrote this letter. And there's a challenge to us. And if you're with us at the beginning of the book of Acts, you heard some of this. The disciples got it twisted as to where, where the kingdom of God was coming, when it was coming, what it would look like. And just to real briefly, the kingdom of God is not found in any political party, any geopolitical boundaries, any geography or country or city. That is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is found in a people, namely the, the church, Christians throughout the world, a people of God, under the authority of God, by the power of God. That's the kingdom of God. And so we fear God because he's instituted in us his kingdom, the place where he is king. And we don't worship the emperor. Yes, we show honor, but we don't ever worship worldly rulers, no matter what party they're a part of. Fear reverence, veneration, worship is due to God alone. But nevertheless, as Christians, and this is where Peter ends, 
We are to continually and habitually show honor to the emperor, to the king, to the president, to the government authorities, and I'll finish with this reference in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, arguably one of the greatest ways we can honor those in authority over us and among us is by praying for them. 1 Timothy 2, which I think this is just an expression of what we've been talking about, Paul says to his protege, Timothy, he says, first of all, in reference to the local church, this is how I want you and you should function as a family of believers. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, all sorts of prayers, and notably thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. I'm going to take a minute and pray in just, just a second, but one thing I want to highlight, you know, in a room this size, I don't want to assume that any, there's, everybody in this room understands the nature of the gospel message. Like one of the things we see in this section, this unit, this submission to authority, is that Jesus is our supreme example of one who submitted himself to the authority and, and the will of the Father. That like a, a lamb to its slaughter, he was led to the cross and submitted himself, and stood himself to his Father who judges righteously. And if this cross behind me, in your view, is, is more confusing than it, than it does give you life, then let me just briefly explain. When we talk about Christians, we're talking about those who have put their trust completely in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and for life right now and life to come. The Bible clearly depicts that this life is a breath. It is a vapor. It's here one moment and gone the next. And as a people of God, we're living for the, f- the future life that we've been promised. And my encouragement to you this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus, like you wound up here, you're not, not even sure how you came into this room is I want you to understand that because of your sin, just like mine before I knew Jesus, you are an enemy of God. You're separate from him. You may have been to church your whole life. You may have responded in some measure, but you've never truly surrendered your life. He's never become your king and increasingly your treasure. Make today the day that you submit to him as your ultimate ruler and authority and find life in him. The Bible is full of illustrations and pictures that we always try to find life where only death is promised. And I pray that today would be the the turn for you where you find life where life is promised. You find it in the Lord Jesus. That all of us, in particular for us as a church family, if you call this church home, that we'd be those who are dedicated to as long as we can and so much as it depends on us, submitting to government out of a fear of God so that the gospel and its change in us would be evident boldly proclaimed, even just through our actions that nobody can explain, but for the presence of Christ within us. Amen? Amen. Let's take a minute and pray for kings and all those who are in high positions. Um, Father, I admit, I, I do not obey this command as often as I should. Some of that is out of pure laziness, and some of it is out of personal preference for who may benefit from those prayers. There's been a failure in my own heart to honor our president and other leaders in a way that we simply see in this text 
because of personal feelings about their positions or policies, but your word doesn't give us that license. You call us plainly to to be subject to government authorities because you're the one that's put them in place ultimately for our good and for the good of culture and society. So uh, where there's a rebellious spirit within us, where the starting block for us is more rebellion and revolt, I pray that you would humble us underneath your word that the very least what would happen today is that the place we would start from is the simple command to be subject to government authorities. And recognizing that that's for your sake, for your name, and ultimately that the, the mouths of those who are in opposition to you would be shut as they stand in awe of your presence within us. So we do pray. Uh, we pray for President. Uh, God, we pray that you, you grant him the grace and wisdom, even in this particular season, as he uh, tries to figure out with the council of his cabinet and Congress how to engage uh, with the invasion of Russia into the Ukraine. I pray that you grant him and those around him uh, wisdom to know how to, how to lead and how to care for our country. Uh, we have remarkable freedom uh, in this country that's been purchased by countless men and women in the past and is being secured even now by their sacrifice. So we pray that you grant our leaders wisdom as to how to steward and how to care for the men and women around the world who are protecting our freedom. And God, I pray that you would, um, you would grant for the increase of righteousness uh, through um, our government officials, locally and a state level, um, at a federal level, that believers would be actively working in those spaces to make a difference. For those who are in high positions, as those who are Christians, who are seeking to obey the Word of God, that you'd use them uniquely in those spots to bring about change. And God, we pray ultimately that the testimony of your people, as those who submit to government, as those involved in government, as those who pray for our president and our government as well, that all of it would be done so that the difference that Jesus makes would be supremely evident in our lives. That people would have no explanation for such a life, for such a response, but for the fact that Jesus is alive and he's alive in us. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together.